Well, we're going to be looking together at Matthew chapter 15, so please keep that open in front of you, and we'll be looking at verses 21 to 28. Racism is in the news, and yet sadly racism is nothing new. You can find racism described in the Bible, and racism is not just something that white people are guilty of. Living and, and serving in the, in the Middle East, we, we have seen racism occur between all colours and races. And racism is not always one way either. To our shame, anti-Semitism has persisted throughout history, both inside and outside the church. And yet we also know that Jewish people have been guilty of racism. And maybe some would say that racism is inevitable. When you have a religion that identifies one people as God's chosen people, there chose, there chose to be a blessing, blessing to all the nations, nations, but then it's, it's so, so difficult, difficult not to feel superior at the, at the same, same time. God's, God's people, people were chosen to attract others to God, to God rather, rather than exclude them. And yet and we you know that religion of all types has often tended to exclude people rather than include. But then we shouldn't also think that racism is just a religious problem. Western democratic nations have also found it hard to avoid this feeling of superiority as they have sought to bless the world with their democracy. I think that racism is just one of the many terrible ways that sin works its poison in our lives and in our society. So therefore it's very uncomfortable when we come to this passage in Matthew chapter 15 and we see this encounter between Jesus and a foreign lady and we think, is this not racism. This Canaanite woman, she comes to Jesus, she's desperate for help, and she seems to be on the receiving end of a racist insult from Jesus, who is, of course, a Jewish man. Now, as always in looking at difficult passages, the context is so important. Jesus has just been teaching his disciples about what makes a person clean and unclean, and he's made it very clear that it's nothing to do with the external. Nothing to do with what you eat, and certainly nothing to do with your skin colour. But rather, of course, it's all about our hearts. And I would like to suggest that that's why, or one reason why, we humans are naturally racist, because we always prefer to look at the outside of a person and compare ourselves and feel better, rather than look at the inside of the person and see that every single person has the same sickness of sin at the core of our hearts. And therefore, we're all completely equal as we stand before God in need of forgiveness. But the other bit of context is in verse 21. Verse 21 says, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, for our family, Tyre is a beautiful, historic seaside town that was home to our young family as they grew up for nearly seven years. We love going back there. Tyre has some of the best beaches in Lebanon. But at the time of Jesus, and for any Jewish person like Jesus, Tyre and Sidon, they were foreign places full of foreigners. But you know, even when we decided to move to Tyre, the people of Beirut, also Lebanese, said, oh, don't go to Tyre. They're backward. They're uneducated. It's not safe there. And then when we moved from Tyre to Tripoli in the north of Lebanon, once again, we heard the same thing the people of Tyre said about the people of Tripoli. Oh, don't go there. They're very extreme there. You won't be safe. Jesus, of course, did nothing by accident. And so having talked to his disciples about what makes a person clean 
or unclean. He takes his disciples to a foreign place where they would have felt distinctly uncomfortable. And in fact, they may have felt ceremonially unclean. But actually, we're not going to start with how they are feeling. In fact, we're going to start by thinking about this Canaanite woman and how she was feeling. And that brings us to our first point, the blessing of desperation. Verse 22, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Now, Jesus and this woman would both have known that according to their respective cultures that they were both part of, she could not expect a reply from him and he should not speak to her. So why on earth would she bother? Well, of course, because she's desperate. So she keeps her respectful distance and she cries out to Jesus. And even though Jesus doesn't seem to give her any encouragement, her desperation then takes her even closer to Jesus. She started at a respectful distance, but then she comes and kneels at the feet of Jesus. Verse 25, the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And remember, she's not just kneeling before Jesus. She's kneeling in front of a whole group of men who did not want her to be there. It would indeed have been a very pitiful sight to see her kneeling and begging before this group of men, and she would have got no pity from them. And Jesus does not seem to ease her discomfort. Verse 26, he replied, It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Well, maybe it's okay to say that someone eats like a horse, and that might be seen as some kind of joke. But if you called someone a greedy pig, it would be nothing but an insult. Calling someone a sly fox might be a, a backwards compliment. But if you liken someone to a dog, that would never be seen as a compliment. Although I have noticed since we returned to the UK this time, how much of a dog-loving nation Britain is. But it's not like that in the Middle East. You won't find dogs nicely cared for in homes. You find them on the streets, dirty and dejected, miserable. Not man's best friend, but rather the village nuisance. So it's very difficult then to, to hear these words in the mouth of Jesus. He's basically using the vocabulary of his own people. This is exactly how they would have talked about foreigners like this lady before them. We're going to look a little bit later at why Jesus would do this. But for the moment, the important thing is to see that she accepts what Jesus says. Verse 27, Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. We well, might well say that she was desperate for help. Of course she'll accept anything that Jesus says, but that is actually just the point. She is desperate for Jesus. She's desperate for Jesus to hear her cry, and she will happily accept the label of dog if he will only help her. Now, Jesus is using the name that his people would have used for her. But she is willing to accept that before God, she is less than a dog is before a human being. And it made me wonder how desperate we are for the Lord Jesus Christ. How strongly do we feel our absolute need for him? And I think that what name we are willing to be called by reveals just how desperate we are. We do have ways of calling ourselves by names that admit some kind of failing, like we're not what we should be, but 
still that name preserves our dignity. I was thinking, for example, of the word or the name rogue. If you look the dictionary definition up, it says that a rogue is a, a deceitful and unreliable scoundrel, a wicked or evil person. That's the definition in the, in the dictionary. And yet we have coined this phrase, a lovable rogue. I found a list online of the top 10, uh, sorry, top 50 most lovable rogues. And it started with the question, who doesn't love a good rogue? Well, isn't that an oxymoron? A good rogue? And is that how we see ourselves before God, as lovable rogues? We know we're sinners, and we know that we let him down, but we feel that somehow he just can't help himself but love us when he sees our cute grins, our apologetic smiles, our coy embarrassment, and then he just can't help but pick us up again and love us once more. But this persuades us that our need for God is not something to make us desperate for him at all costs. And it also diminishes our view of the love of God for us. Because his love for us then becomes not the love of the perfect lover for the unlovely, but rather because he has found some redeeming feature in us that provokes his love for us. The Apostle Paul called himself the worst of all sinners, almost like he was boasting about it. And then King David, in Psalm 22, he described himself as a worm before God. And remember, Psalm 22, he is speaking prophetically with the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. How would you react if someone called you a dirty lowlife? I know one pastor who responded to a, an insult just like that, with the response, actually, I'm much worse than that. The Apostle Paul will happily take this name, the chief of sinners, because it expresses his desperation for the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the same time, it exalts the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for him. Now this Canaanite woman, she is brought to this desperation by circumstances that we would not wish on, on anyone. And yet we must see that she is the winner in this whole scene. She's had a personal audience with Jesus, and she's been released from her misery. There is indeed a blessing in desperation. But then we see, secondly, that Jesus tests those he loves. It's difficult in this scene to not focus all our attention on this poor, desperate woman, but actually she's not the only person that Jesus loves and tests in this very uncomfortable encounter, and it would have been uncomfortable for all of them. And to understand some of the difficult things that Jesus says, we need to remember that it's not just the woman there in front of him, but also the disciples were there as well. And he is loving them and testing and teaching them as well. And notice how they react when Jesus does not respond to the woman's first cry for help. 23, Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. This is a very embarrassing situation for them. She's foreign and she's female, and as far as they're concerned, she has no business hanging around them. It's just like that time when they came back from getting food and they found Jesus at the well talking with a Samaritan woman. And the first thing they say to her is, what do you want? They would have had no problem with Jesus ignoring this woman. 
He's doing the right thing as far as they're concerned. What they have a problem with is that he won't get rid of her straight away. Jewish rabbis would not even speak to their relatives, their wives, in public. So the silence of Jesus here doesn't just reveal the faith of the woman, it also reveals the prejudice of his disciples. They are struggling to understand what he's doing here. Then verse 25, the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. I remember at school there was one teacher who always seemed to be hardest on me in the class. And it was therefore very strange when one day one of my friends in the class said, how come you're the teacher's favorite? Because sometimes it is a compliment to someone. The more you test them, the more you believe they can pass the test, but also the more you want them to pass the test. Maybe that's what the woman sees here. Maybe that's why she's not deterred by Jesus' cool response. Because she doesn't just sense that he believes she can pass the test, but that he wants her to pass the test. So verse 27, she says, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. This woman has been willing to accept the insult and she's turned it round and sent it back to Jesus with interest. She has the humility to accept her lowly status, but she has amazing faith to accept that even a crumb from Jesus would be enough. And then she's had the wisdom to know how to respond to him. And Jesus now makes it clear to everyone standing there that this woman is the hero of the story, not his religiously careful disciples. He's holding her up in front of all of these men who despised her presence. And he says, here is one of the greats of faith. This is one person in the Bible that we should all want to be like. We should aspire to be like her. So often Jesus berated his disciples for their slow or, or lack of faith. But Jesus says that this foreign woman has truly great faith. In fact, he doesn't give praise like this to anyone else in the Bible except one other person. Guess who? Another foreigner, the Roman centurion. And then when Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth and he wants to give his people examples of great people of faith, he doesn't pick anyone from his own people. Instead, he points to two foreigners, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman, who was healed of his leprosy. So that brings us to our final point, a saviour for all races. Verse 22, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Well, it should strike us surely that a foreign woman from a totally different religion should greet Jesus with this kind of greeting. She is greeting him with a name that not even his own people are greeting him. Now, you could say this is a cynical ploy by her. She's trying to ingratiate herself to him so that she can get what she wants. But then when you read the rest of this scene and Jesus' commendation of her, you see, no, this is a genuine recognition of who Jesus is. But then we still have this problem that at the same time that Jesus lifts her up as an example of great faith, he 
seems to be excluding her and foreigners at the same time. Verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. How do we understand these seeming contradictions in what Jesus is saying? Well, the name Israel is about to undergo a very significant shift in meaning in the minds of Jesus' disciples. We know that at this stage in their journey, they're still waiting for Jesus to restore the fortunes of the nation of Israel. But then, not so many years later, the Apostle Paul will write in his letter to the church in Rome that the true Israel is Christ's church. And it's not going to be very long after this encounter that the Apostle Peter, who would have been there watching this woman, he will be invited to the home of a Roman centurion. He will object at first that he could not possibly go, but then Christ insists that there is no further place for any kind of exclusion or separatism or racism in his kingdom. That God's Israel is not a nation or a race, but all peoples from all nations who are belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to understand this uncomfortable encounter, not as the destination, but as part of the journey. And we're going to read on later as we read in the Bible ourselves to Revelation. You will see that the great vision that Jesus is taking them to is all peoples from all nations and all languages and all tribes worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where Jesus is taking them. That's where Jesus is taking us. But it takes time. It takes time to completely change the way someone thinks. We're seeing that in our own society and culture today. You can say racism is wrong. You can agree that racism is wrong. But we all know that society takes years for its attitudes and ingrained perceptions to change. I expect that very few people, when asked, would say that they're racist. But I would say that because of sin in our hearts, every human being is racist in some way or another. And so Jesus wants to take us all on a journey of learning. A journey of learning and a journey of change. Not just for the sake of changing us, but for the sake of his kingdom. Yes, he wants to change our hearts, but his great vision is to bring in all peoples from all tribes, tongues, languages and colours into his kingdom. Now, to teach his disciples, what did he do? He took them to a strange place, a foreign place, where they would have felt uncomfortable, just like the foreigner feels amongst them. And I think, therefore, we can expect Jesus to do the same with us to take us to where we are not uncomfortable. And rather than reject these situations or avoid them, we should welcome them. We should welcome the times when Jesus takes us to uncomfortable places. That is certainly what he's done with us over the years as he took us to the Middle East. We have always felt foreign there. It has always been good for us to feel like outsiders there. Jesus has taught us valuable lessons. Now, he may not be calling all of you to serve overseas. I hope that he's calling some of you to serve him overseas. But he's calling all of us to go to the people we are not like, to the people we don't feel comfortable with, to reach those who are not like us. And in the process, he will teach us and change us. But perhaps more importantly, in the process, he will bring others who are not like us into his kingdom. So the final question is for all of us, who are the people in our lives who are not like us, who are the foreigner, the outsider, the stranger? And how can we share life more with them? And then the question that follows that is, if there aren't those kind of people in our lives, how can we change the way we live 
so that there are more people in our lives who are not like us, strangers, outsiders, different from us. And we should welcome these opportunities because the Lord Jesus will change us and because he will use us to bring people from all tribes, colours, race, languages into his kingdom.